This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hannah Asafiri is our guest this morning. She's a proprietor of the Moroccan Soup Bar and also uh, the Moroccan Delicacy on Ligon Street in East Brunswick, her new venture. And uh, we had her in last December to talk about her delicious cookbook. Um, so, and she's also um, inspiration for artist Ai Weiwei as well. Lots of <laughs> things. You've got a big long resume here. But um, um, Hannah has also kicked off a new event um, which is running each fortnight at 3pm on a Sunday called Speed Date a Muslim and uh, she, this is where Hannah invites Muslim women to host a table and cafe guests can ask them any question they like. A very respectful event and uh, she said uh, it's her contribution to world peace and we <laughs> applaud your efforts, <laughs> Hannah, and thanks for popping by <laughs> to talk about it. Um, like I said last time you were in, you mentioned, um, I think off air, that you were thinking about doing these events and of course you have. <laughs> well, you know me, I mean, I'm not backward in coming forward. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, look, uh, on the back of the book, and I just, you know, a big thanks to Melbourne. It's been so well received. It sold out in four weeks. And, um, you know, we're on second print and, um, you know, where, where Melbourne embraces it. It's only a place like this that we can then begin to launch more creative um, events and uh, propositions. So on the back of the conversations we've had and thinking about some of the broader political and social issues. For me, um, these events are about taking a little bit of responsibility for doing our micro part in uh, moving beyond some of the simplistic conversations that have been had about Islam, about women. And um, in my experience, there is a genuine appetite for a more sophisticated conversation. Um, So I just thought, how can we contribute to that in a way that is non-threatening, that is respectful and peaceful, where people can have an insight into the diversity of what it is to be Muslim um, and a woman um, in Melbourne in 2016. Uh, and thankfully, not only has it been so well received, it's also had a ripple effect uh, that we're having to now navigate through and make sense of. And I was going to say, I mean, I've noticed um, sort of the, some of the mainstream media pick up on, on this story and it's kind of gone worldwide. There's <laughs> articles in the New York yeah. Times and The yeah. Guardian. So there's, in France. That's right. <laughs> there's really broad interest. In Look, it, to me, it's a bit like the stock market. It doesn't make any sense at all. And it's got <laughs> its own momentum, but... Um, But in seriousness, though, it is a reflection of the fact that people want to know. And um, there is a lot of good intention out there. And and look, these platforms don't endeavour to speak to the converted and or those who have actively formulated an opinion opposite. Um, It's to speak to the curious and there are many of us well-meaning, curious and genuinely want to know so it's an opportunity for us to have dialogue. Now I I just think the controversial position that we're taking is one where 
and how outlandish is it that women, and, and I think it is topical that we are talking about women for the first time in a real way at every level of society, politicians, the media, we talk about violence against women um, and um, the treatment of women, the subjugation of women and Islam is no different uh, and we as women who are progressive, who... Um, uh, in an endeavour to reconceptualise what has happened to Islam over the years and how women feature in it and how women have been severed out of those conversations. <clears throat> now that is not unique to Islam. I mean I, I refer to Tony Abbott and I use it almost as a cliche in how he handled Julia Gillard and all the wink on radio and his attitudes towards women. Now Islam or, or Islamic, it's not Islam per se, but it is Islamic practices and traditions and cultures who equally require interrogation. So as women, I think we're coming on board and having the conversations that need to be had with the underpinning premise that there is nothing sacred about Islam uh, which condones violence against women or the subjugation of women. That is our starting point. And from there, that agenda is, is quite progressive. And I, I mean, I'd love you to talk about where, where, like the platform that you've provided, Hannah, because I think, um, you know, people that know your, your businesses will know that you've got women in your kitchen, women mm. front of house, uh, that for a long time you've run your businesses as social enterprises as well. And uh, I suppose all of that coming together with this idea of Speed Data Muslim means that it is a particularly safe place to have these conversations. And, I'd, you know, describe what it was like mm. the first couple of times you, that you run these events. How, how did it sort of play out? Look, I think um, the idea was quite innocent. It was simply to respond to a number of, and I think I mentioned that in the book when I wrote the stories, that there's a little misconception um, and at times it comes across as harsh, harsh judgment of women and some of the staff that I have at the Moroccan Super. Uh, <coughs> sorry. So uh, the endeavour was was that most people who come into the Moroccan Super, um, including us, walk away a little bit changed every night. Um, and I thought, how do we extend that to a day event and an event which can take on board all the information and all the conversations that have been had over and in particular around some of the tricky stuff to do with um, Islamic uh, imposition of itself over the world and, and how some of those attitudes are then formed through that simplistic media conversation. Um, and sadly it does. When it translates, it translates to a woman who's wearing a hijab either being aggressed or abused or... and. We wanted to take a little bit of responsibility for that in a safe environment and say, guys, um, I understand that most people are well-meaning and most people are decent and most people are curious and want to know. So we then sought to create the platform over complimentary coffee and tea for an hour where people can ask seriously the most benign question and not feel uh, ridiculed by it. Because I think... 
in order to affect change, you need to go where people are at. And if your view and understanding is that Islam is a country and a language, then ask it and we will clarify. Now, and I do need to reiterate that none of us claim to be scholarly nor uh, are we offering an Islamic position on anything. We're simply expressing our diverse experiences and views as women and we're trying to, for the first time, I guess contribute to a platform that is more progressive um, and which seeks to take responsibility for defining Islam in the way we truly understand it. And how have these women found the experience so far? Is it something that they're sort of really happy to, to continue to engage in? <laughs> Look, yes. They were um, and are, and uh, as you mentioned, the media um, covered it and created its own momentum. So some have uh, come back saying, oh, I'm not sure I'm qualified. You know, we've had extraordinary response. Up to 800 people wanted to come to this event. And the minute, I guess, you make something public and open it up for commentary, you will get a cross-section of the community um, and we without being contrived we want to keep it safe and we want to keep it a conversation that will progress and evolve um, so we've had to come back together a little bit and clarify and crystallize our speaking position so from there, um, you know, the, the characteristics I mentioned earlier that um, our speaking platform will never condone violence against women within an Islamic framework. Now, Muslims and non-Muslims, if you want to have that conversation, please don't come. Um, that we are, um, and it is an endeavour to provide an opportunity for Muslim women to converse um, and clarify our convictions as well as share and engage with and contribute to a genuine sense of cohesive community that is multiculturalism. Um, and look, the more we do this, the more it reaffirms to me there is so much need and such an appetite for it that, um, you know, once a fortnight is not enough. But sadly, we can only run them once a fortnight at the moment and um, maybe we can think a bit more creatively about other settings to have a Q&A kind of session in. But, yeah, because yeah. the space isn't that huge. I mean, it's very beautiful it's space. <laughs> yeah, it's a very beautiful space and a very yeah. welcoming space. And yeah. friends of mine who took part in one of them, um, Hannah, said to me, oh, look, it's so kid-friendly. You, yeah. you know, you should book in and bring your kids if, yeah. you know, if, that's, if you're interested. And I, I wonder, I mean, has, is that the sort of vibe that you, you're setting up there? Look, I think change will happen with kids. Kids are the future. I mean, without sounding like a cliche, and um, kids are curious, and that subconscious bias hasn't really been formulated yet. Um, so, absolutely encourage kids. And um, the only consequence of this increased demand and, and the publicity is that we've now had to have a register. Um, so people register their interest and once the event is full we kind of close it and then you can register for the next fortnight and so on. Um, but absolutely, women, kids, um, anybody who is curious and uh, who feels there's something they need to know, please come and, come and ask.
Mm. And I mean, with um, the, the sort of broad interest and um, and commentary that that you've attracted, or the um, the project I suppose has attracted mm. since being in the mainstream media, do you have kind of people coming to you that are really interested in what you're doing and wanting to maybe learn from your experience or set something up in a similar way in their cafe in their town? Uh, not quite yet. Um, I think we'll get there. Look, I jokingly often say that um, you know East Brunswick or you know Inner North will lead the country on uh, humane, compassionate um, strategies, but not yet. Having said that, we have had a number of um, inquiries and requests to speak or to attend different events uh, with the group. Now, the group is not a group; it's a number of women who are keen and generous uh, to offer their time and have the conversation because they are also tired of these very simple conversations which are unfounded, absolutely unfounded. This simplistic, divisive conversation has got to stop. And so women, (coughs) excuse me, nominate themselves Um, and sometimes they're the same women and sometimes they're different women um, because they want to contribute to a more open conversation. And I wonder about the name, um, Hannah, because I think it's actually speed dating is being used in all different contexts now. It's not just about dating. But but is this something that, have people questioned this name? Yeah, look, I I use it problematically and deliberately. And um, with the spirit of speed dating, and the idea is to approach it with the openness that is necessary, that you approach another human being with an open heart and mind and genuinely are open to getting to know another person Um, and whatever the outcome and so for me it was about re uh, adopting those principles as we are re-adopting the principles of Islam um, in terms of its recognition for the empowerment of women and this is about recognizing that speed dating or (laughs) the term speed dating is simply about getting to know another person with the openness that is necessary to make for a good or better outcome than the one we had before the date, so to speak. And so the plan is at this stage to run these events each fortnight? Yes. Look, um, I hope... Yes. Yes, that is the... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's a bit... Yes, full stop. Well, (laughs) only because... When, whenever any, an event um, is evolving, I guess you've got to be able to moderate it and manage it in such a way that keeps everybody safe and keeps everybody feeling respected and supported. Now, um, and like I said, sometimes depending on the audience or the context, um, I can come across so extraordinarily conservative because the outside context is so progressive. Um, other times, depending on the speaking kind of position, I can come across so radical. Now, I'm simply saying very simple, basic things. Um, Who the audience is uh, will ensure that we shape these events in a particular way. And that is why we're coming back a little bit and kind of saying, let's keep it small, let's have a register, um, and let's continue, rather than throw Muslim women in the deep end with this sort of almost um, sensationalism, let's equip all of, all of the participants with enough um, 
training and confidence so that we are able to continue these events and the hope is that we can and continue to have them as long as the demand is there. Well, I mean, as, as I said at the beginning, we um, applaud your efforts in this way and, you know, the, your goals are very simple on one hand but quite humongous on the other <laughs> hand, world peace no less. But I think it's, um, I, I think that, you know, hopefully, um, you know, you, you do find a way forward to make these events kind of happen as, as you're hoping and, and um, that it continues to be such a positive experience for everybody involved. And um, so if people do want to participate and are interested, um, what's the best way? So uh, at the moment we t- we're taking a registry of people's email contact details and uh, we'll send them out the next invite and, what, and they'll indicate um, their availability or their intent to attend um, and once it's full that'll be a cut off and then we'll send out the next. So it is um, yeah through a register at the moment and you can register just by hopping on our website, coming into the deli or the Moroccan super or I don't know, grabbing someone in the street saying, hey, I want to be It <laughs> <laughs> really doesn't, it will know, will know if you want to come. And um, in the hope that, you know, at the very least, um, it's our way of contributing to world peace. And I reckon it's where Brunswick is where it's happening. <laughs> and, and just quickly before, um, before we let you go, Hannah, you um, also, as if you didn't have enough um, already on your plate, <laughs> you're in the process of organising the first Moroccan festival in yes. Melbourne, I understand. What, if, uh, what is in store for that? Oh, well, again, um, yeah, it's true. I don't understand why I do what I do. (laughs) Um, The aim of the festival was to be a launch pad for a fundraiser, um, and in in particular uh, to women in Syrian refugee camps. And I guess... um, to continue to ignore and kind of not make it our business, I think, is a life half lived. That um, that level of global awareness impacts everybody, um, and for us to do our part, um, I just thought creatively we haven't had a Moroccan festival before, and how can we have a, an expression of all that we are in its theatrics, in its uh, food and music, and ensure that it's also a platform form for, you know, extraordinary women to express their art and uh, performances as well as feed and stimulate all the senses. Um, And all the proceeds will go specifically to women and and children in refugee camps. Now, the reason I say women is because, look, there's a a number of amazing organisations doing a lot of work. The reality is when women are displaced, women and children and and those that are vulnerable, the incidence of violence against women increases a hundredfold. And simply speaking, some of the practical things that these women need are not available. A space where Nauru looks like luxury accommodation is problematic and I take personally. So uh, we're looking to to establish simple things like separate toilets and and bathroom facilities where the violence occurs, circuit break those incidents of violence, sanitary packs, etc. And we will work with reputable organisations who are already there. Sadly, there aren't specific programs uh, by the organisations that we've contacted so far. 
which are specifically levelled at women. So we will work with them to, uh, rather than reinvent the wheel, um, utilise their existing networks and extend them somewhat to provide this particular service. So the, the festival will be a fundraiser come festival. Snake charmers, hustlers, pickpockets, they'll all be there. <laughs> but yeah, it's on the 10th of um, April. It will have an intellectual component and possibly a entire street of speed daters as well. Wow. Um, yeah, 10th of April, 11 till 5. That sounds to me like you've really got to get on Hunter's mailing list uh, <laughs> and keep up to date, but we'll also keep you up to date with what's going on uh, through Triple R. And um, thanks so much for coming in, Hannah, and all the best. And um, looking forward to seeing how um, the festival goes, but also how these um, Speed Date and Muslim events evolve as well. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And I love coming here. Oh, good. We love having you. And Professor Gary Foley is our guest now. He's with Victoria University's Rundani Balak Indigenous Academic Unit. And... Um, um, in my humble opinion, one of the more inspiring history lecturers going. He's, of course, a renowned activist, actor, academic, and has been running a public lecture series in recent months as well, which you might have caught one of. He's popped by to catch up, but also to talk about a statewide meeting that happened recently around the Recognise campaign, and it's always good to have you in. Gary, welcome. Good morning. Yes. And maybe tell us what happened with the, um, the meeting around Recognise, because last time we had you on this program, we were talking about, I suppose, that... that um, call for recognition in the constitution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is um, sort of fracturing. It's not a cohesive campaign at the moment. What, what happened at the meeting? Well, it was um, an extraordinary meeting in the sense that, first of all, it was a meeting that was convened by the state government of Victoria to consult the Aboriginal community uh, about what the state government position on the constitutional recognition should be. Uh, there were, I think there were about 200 people in a big uh, hall in uh, Melbourne at Federation Square. There were links to 10 different communities around the state online in the course of the meeting. So possibly up to 500 people uh, across the state. Uh, in my opinion, it was uh, probably the most uh, representative uh, community meeting of Aboriginal people in Victoria for the last 25 years. Uh, it seemed to me that all of the uh, various factions in the community were there and represented to have their say. But the most amazing thing about it all was um, there was, when it came to uh, a motion about the uh, proposed referendum for constitutional change to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution, the meeting unanimously rejected uh, constitutional recognition in, in the context of saying that uh, the, they thought that it was uh, a diversionary tactic to divert people's attentions from the real issues that confront the Aboriginal community, most, in, most particularly the outrageous uh, incarceration rate of Aboriginal people, the appalling health statistics, the whole range of uh, serious issues that confront the community and not least the increasing levels of racism that uh, the Aboriginal community is experiencing and the, these community representatives clearly felt that these were far more important issues than some token gesture of constitutional recognition. Uh, and that in itself is a really interesting 
development because if you read the mainstream media and listen to mainstream radio rather than good stations like this, um, what you're still getting is the uh, nonsense that's being peddled by a small number of the black elite around Australia and a, and large numbers of sadly misguided uh, white supporters who are pushing the uh, this notion of uh, cons- constitutional recognition as important. Now, the national committee that's supposedly pushing this uh, proposal uh, have failed to have any really representative meetings around Australia, and I suspect that's because they know as we predicted in this Victorian meeting, they know that the vast majority of Aboriginal people around Australia are not in the slightest bit bit interested in this proposal for constitutional change. Uh, most people in Australia that I've talked to, who, who are the thinkers rather than the drinkers, uh, seem to understand that uh, a change, you know, a change in a phrase in the Constitution is going to do absolutely nothing for Aboriginal people. And I endorse that uh, line for the simple reason that I was involved in the, um, uh, towards the end of the 1967 referendum. And I know the amount of work that was put into achieving the extraordinary result that happened there, where 90% of the Australian people voted in support of a proposition that they understood to mean, uh, you know, do you believe in justice for Aboriginal people or not? Uh, but things were different then, you know, that came at, that result came at the end of a 10 year campaign by some of the most extraordinarily uh, eloquent and uh, effective Aboriginal political activists of that era, people like uh, Faith Bandler, John Newfong, a whole range of people put 10 years of work and achieved a remarkable result but that will not happen today and even if the constitutional referendum did get up, even if it did have the level of support that the 67 referendum had in the Aboriginal community it would still achieve nothing as indeed the 1967 referendum achieved nothing in the short term, in the immediate aftermath of 1967 and, and Gary, I mean the meeting. I'd love to hear more about what took place at, at the meeting that you um, that we're talking about. But uh, when when we spoke to you last year about the recognised campaign and, and what it was trying to achieve, and that there is this lack of of support in the Aboriginal community for it, um, a lot of people said, "Well, we know." To me, off air, when we came, you know, over the coming weeks, they they heard you speaking and said, "But what am I supposed to think? You know, what should I be supporting the campaign? How do I find out more?" Um, where does that leave us when it comes to wanting to to make amends, I suppose, in some way in the Constitution for the fact that it's um, a document that is flawed? Well, the, the first and foremost thing that people should uh, take from that uh, meeting in Melbourne is that it confirms what I was suggesting the last time I was here, and that is that the proposition does not have support from within the broader grassroots Aboriginal community and therefore people need to start listening to people other than the likes of Noel Pearson and Professor Langton and other um, you know, Aboriginal elite leaders who are pushing this proposition. People need to take notice of what the community thinks and the community made its position abundantly clear in this statewide meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, it, it sort of, I mean what that meeting illustrates very simply is that, you know, people are being conned, people are being fooled, the mainstream media and, you know, any proposition uh, that, that the black elite 
claims is going to be beneficial to Aboriginal people and which has uh, bipartisan support in, in the gas works in Canberra invariably, necessarily means that it's not going to be any good for Aboriginal people. And Aboriginal people clearly see and know that and they've clearly expressed that in this meeting in Victoria. People need to listen to what the Aboriginal community is saying and what the Aboriginal community said uh, uh, when asked, well, what's the alternative at the Melbourne meeting? People were talking about, um, uh, let's examine... Uh, a treaty or treaties because, you know, there was a belief that it's not a question of having a treaty. It would uh, seem to be that all Aboriginal nations need to be negotiated with all the, you know, different mobs around Australia because even a treaty is not a sim simple proposition. It's uh, something that needs to be negotiated with each and every different mob that there are. Um, the other question that was raised at the meeting uh, for discussion and for consideration is uh, recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty. You know, these may seem like complex uh, issues, which they are, but uh, they're much more to have discussions and negotiations along those directions uh, are a much more productive way to go than talk about this silly proposition for, you know, recognition in the Constitution. Aboriginal people don't want that. Uh, but the other issues that came out of um, the meeting, like I said, were people were concerned about the appalling incarceration rates. Now, this is something that the state government uh, is in a position to do something about, um, you know, because the state government uh, presides over the state uh, legal system, the state government presides, presides over the, the state prison system, you know, and... Uh, until such, you know, 25 years ago we had a Royal Commission in Aboriginal Deaths in Custody which clearly said 25 years ago that the reason so many Aboriginal people were dying in the jails in Australia was because there were so many Aboriginal people in the jails in Australia. 25 years ago we had one of the highest incarceration rates uh, of any people on earth. The Aboriginal people were among the most jailed people on earth 25 years ago. The, the primary recommendations of the Royal Commission were designed to prevent supposed to prevent Aboriginal people from going to jail at the rates that they were then. Now, the Aboriginal incarceration rate today is far worse than it was 25 years ago. So if people want to do something practical, they need to start pressuring governments to do something about the ongoing incarceration rate, for example. And the other thing, significant thing that the Royal Commission found 25 years ago, Aboriginal people weren't going to jail then uh, because we were any more criminal than anyone else, uh, they were going to jail at the rates they were then because the of you know because of the embedded and deeply embedded racism within the Australian criminal justice system, and that's gotten worse in the last 25 years. And so racism is a major problem. We can see uh, racism manifesting itself in the in, in Australian people, you know, too many Australian people's attitudes towards uh, refugees and asylum seekers today, but also, and in particular, towards the Aboriginal community. And any person who's non-white in Australia today is fully aware of the 
problem of white racism in the Australian community, something that is completely denied in most instances by mainstream media and mainstream Australians, and in particular mainstream Australian politicians. And, and to backtrack just, just briefly, Gary, um, when you were talking about the mainstream media as, as not really giving any credit to this widely held view, um, the constitutional recognition isn't really necessarily a, a positive or um, helpful way to proceed. New Matilda did report about that meeting, which as far as I could tell was one of the few organisations that, um, that reported about the, the 500 or so Aboriginal leaders around the country um, coming to that decision. But um, on, on the matter of incarceration rates, in the wake of Close the Gap, the Close the Gap report for this year, which showed um, sadly, predictably, that there hasn't really been any real improvements across, across many of the indicators. One thing that, that some are calling for, um, such as, as Pat Dodson, is that incarceration rates should be included in Close the Gap. But I mean, Close the Gap is a broad rubric has been criticised for as a failure by some as well. Do you think anything would be helped from including targets around incarceration rates? Things like Close the Gap and things like the campaign for constitutional recognition at the end of the day are ideas that are basically designed to make white people feel better. They're not about addressing the serious and real problems that confront the Aboriginal community. People need to realise that and understand that and not get involved in these sort of nonsensical things, you know. And in terms of the constitutional recognition campaign, that is funded uh, to an extraordinary level. The the yes uh, proposition for that is being funded to an extraordinary proposition. So you've got a bunch of black elite people running around the country advocating it and sort of, you know, the mainstream media is getting behind it and the bipartisan support in Parliament, both state and federal. And, uh, you know, this muddies the water, you know, and why isn't the federal government funding a, a no campaign, you know? And one of the, one of the extraordinary and laughable aspects of the, of the constitutional campaign and, the, and, and I suppose the Melbourne meeting is that at this very moment, the deputy leader of the ALP in New South Wales, who's an Aboriginal woman, who's an old mate of mine, a woman called Linda Burney, is travelling the country with none other than Andrew Bolt, uh, putting together a television show for ABC TV uh, where the issue of uh, the constitutional uh, change is being debated. Linda Burney is taking the position, the proposition in favour of uh, constitutional recognition and ironically Andrew Bolt has been chosen to be the advocate of the no case. Now this meeting in Melbourne has created an extraordinary situation whereby the vast majority, Andrew Bolt is actually putting a position that the vast majority of Aboriginal people support. Linda Burney is putting a position that the vast majority of Aboriginal people oppose. You know, it's like living in a Monty Python script, folks. Might rate highly. Might indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so where, um, from that Melbourne meeting, which um, I... I would, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to see if a, a report comes out of it. Will we see a report of proceedings in some way? And I suppose um, how will some of the ideas and some of the um, important initiatives that, that were um, debated in that meeting be pushed forward? Like, what, what are we, are we going to see a result? Is that, was, was it set up for that? Well, or? It, the state government is well and truly uh, on notice. I mean, I think that the state government, the state minister for Aboriginal affairs who convened the meeting, I think they got a bit of a surprise at the results of the meeting but you know the onus is now on them to you know uh, listen to what the people have clearly said you know the people have spoken they've got to listen um, 
in terms of the mainstream media, I mean, I've got no faith in the mainstream media. And when we talk about the mainstream media, what are we talking about? We're talking about Fairfax and Murdoch. Murdoch's media is not likely to uh, report uh, that meeting in any uh, constructive sort of way. And even Fairfax these days uh, seems to be pretty much a waste of space when it comes to Aboriginal issues. So, uh, you know, we can't expect much better from uh, ABC radio, television. I mean, I most of the people who regard themselves as progressive journalists in either Fairfax or ABC are woefully misinformed themselves, you know. And uh, you've got uh, you've got shows like Q and A that I well you know I won't even talk about Q and A it's a <laughs> complete and utter waste of space. Uh, but there you go. You know, what? for a little while there, people seemed to think that Stan Grant uh, was going to be the new saviour after he made one speech. But then he sort of ruined that effect by going on Q and A. But we won't go into that today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about the, the idea of a treaty? Because that's something that hasn't, um, to my knowledge, been spoken about widely for quite a long. time time, maybe since the Hawke years, and, and given that this is what came out of the meeting in Victoria, there's been murmurings around a treaty um, following the Close the Gap report as well. Do you think that will head in that direction from this point, given there's this kind of sentiment against constitutional recognition? or I think that uh, too many people, including within the Aboriginal community, seem to have uh, forgotten or never knew the uh, what the issues... Um, that were being put forward during the, the so-called black power era, the so-called self-determination era. We need to go back and think about the ideas that were being pushed then because the, within the context of the uh, land rights movement, the self-determination movement in the, in the 1970s were the basis for, for... There were plans, there were constructive plans which showed a path towards genuine Aboriginal self-determination. At the end of the day, what we're going to get back to is the ability of Aboriginal people uh, to again, once again, control their own destinies, to determine their own destiny. That's what the self-determination movement was all about. And the Black Power movement laid out plans which included land rights as a means towards achieving some level of economic independence because the Black Power movement saw economic independence as being a key to, uh, to be in a position to determine your own destiny. You cannot uh, determine your own destiny. If you're an individual white person in Australia, you can't determine your own destiny unless you are personally, economically, self sufficient or independent. And the same applies to in the Aboriginal community. In the sort of society that has been imposed upon us in the last 200 years, this capitalist society, money is the God, not Jesus or, you know, any, anyone else. And so the, the only way that a person or peoples can be free in this country. It's all about freedom. Freedom uh, means self-determination. Self-determination cannot be achieved without economic independence. Land rights was the means by which Aboriginal people were supposed to attain that level of economic independence. Instead, we've got, uh, you know, the Hawke government came to power in 1983 with Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister, declaring he was going to implement national uniform land rights legislation along the lines of the 1975 Northern Territory Act, which gave Aboriginal people freehold title, real meaningful ownership of land. Now, within three months of Bob Hawke 
gain in power. The uh, mining industry, uh, through that corrupt West Australian Premier Brian Burke, put pressure on Hawke and Hawke backed off at a million miles an hour. So Hawke comes to power declaring land rights for Aboriginal people, national uniform land rights legislation. At the end of the Hawke government, what do we end up with? Native title, the most meaningless form of land tenure in British law. If you've got native title, you don't own a damn thing, you know, and yet most Australians have been conned into believing the propaganda that says that native title gave, the Native Title Act, the Mabo decision, gave Aboriginal people land justice. Bullshit. Nonsense. You know, let's go back and re-examine the sort of issues that were around in the 1970s that were designed to give Aboriginal people real power over their own destiny, over their own future. That's ultimately what it's all about. That's what we need. None of this nonsense about uh, constitutional recognition, closing the gap. You know, all this stuff is nonsense. Let's get back to the nitty-gritty. Well, we're definitely... uh, (laughs) We're bursting a few bubbles here this morning. It's Professor Gary Foley with us on The Grapevine. He's with Victoria University. And I wanted to sort of talk about young activists, uh, Gary, because when you were... um, I was going to say when you were young. Look, you're still young. Uh, When you were a young activist... um, you were part of starting a lot of um, really important organisations that are still with us today, um, the uh, Aboriginal Legal Service, Health Services, and we saw a real rallying of, of young people around the um, when the Western Australian Government recently um, sought to close some remote communities in WA, and we saw a real upswelling in, in Melbourne and really across the country of new voices or voices I hadn't heard before, and uh, is the Aboriginal leadership there to kind of push forward some of these other um, uh, important steps like a treaty or like a new way rather than, than constitutional recognition? One of the things that impressed me about the meeting in Melbourne, like I said, it's the first time I've seen uh, such a broadly representative and large Aboriginal community meeting in Victoria for about 25 years. And one of the things that really impressed me there were a whole batch of young people, um, many of whom I didn't even know who they were, who stood up and made some um, really great speeches. And it really sort of showed to me that, uh, A, that uh, there are a young bunch of people who really do understand the issues and who are keen to get up and have a go, uh, but who are also, you know, uh, promising future leaders. They gave me hope for the future. Um, and not only that, I think that war, the warriors, the Aboriginal resistance, the mob who organised the uh, big demonstrations in, uh, uh, against the, the uh, Northern Territory intervention and other things like that in recent times are doing a great job. The people who organised, the young people, again, the young people who organised the big uh, Invasion Day rally this year on the 26th of January uh, did a magnificent job. You know, 10, there were 10,000 people marched on the streets of Melbourne on Invasion Day. You didn't read that in the, the mainstream media, you know, but there were 10,000 people there. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary effort from these young mob, and I reckon, you know, and I think that the way they're going and the, the following that they're starting to attract is is great stuff, and it all goes well for the future. And uh, where possible, I'd like to see um, people, you know, from the old days, from the old Black Power movement and that, who are still around, 
to be uh, continuing to get in the ears of these young people and, and make them more aware of some of the issues then and how we went about uh, outing. But then by the same token, a lot of these young ones who are involved in this are in fact the children and the grandchildren of the of the activists of the of the Black Power era, you know. And when you talk about uh, the Aboriginal Health Service and all these things that we set up in the late 60s, early 70s, that was the Black Power movement that did that. Those organisations and those ideas evolved out of the Black Power movement. And people need to know a little bit about their own history and know a little bit more about what we achieved then. You know, and the, the fact that the Australian governments, and that means Fraser and Hawke and Keating and all the rest, and all the different parties in the gas works in Canberra, put a great deal of effort into uh, trying to demean and, and dismiss the ideas of the Black Power Movement. But the Black Power Movement's ideas uh, are, as, are as valid today as they've ever been. In fact, probably more valid today, given the failure of native title and all these other nonsensical things that we were given by the likes of, you know, some of the pseudo leaders that are still around today, like... We won't mention his name. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for coming in, and it's always good to touch base with you and um, really keep an ear out for um, Professor Gary Foley's lectures, history lectures. They kind of sound, seem like they're on demand, um, and one happening in Adelaide in a couple of weeks, and it's really uh, an opportunity to learn more and um, ask questions, and just like we've been doing today. And thanks so much, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you, folks. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.